Hey, and welcome to this podcast about the human factor in HSE, where we will touch upon how we can send more people home safe, create significant cost savings, and make you look like an HSE rock star using neuroscience safety. My name is Bjorn Jepsen. I'm the CEO and founder of WeFocus. I will be your host on this particular podcast. If you want to learn more about what we do, you can go to acceptplanexecute.com. Otherwise, I truly hope that you will enjoy this podcast. Welcome to everyone to another episode of the Human Factor podcast in HSE. I'm truly excited to have you here. Today is going to be a, a bit of a special episode. I'm really excited about sharing the knowledge to everyone who is within the HSE space because I think that what you're going to hear today is going to be a huge site opener for a lot of people and it's actually going to open up a lot of opportunities for people to do really great stuff and further their own career development and also further their opportunity to follow passion in a stronger way and today i have michael with me and he's the ceo and founder of yellowbird welcome to you michael thank you so much it's a pleasure to be here Great stuff. First of all, thank you for setting uh, time aside. I can understand that you have an extremely exciting day ahead of you. So I think that we're going to just jump straight in and then we'll see kind of where it takes us because there is a lot of interesting stuff that, that we're going to cover. But first of all, can you give a short introduction to kind of yourself and... I always ask people where they are in the world because it's quite interesting. Yes, yes, thank you. And um, it's the beginning of my day where I am and it's the end of your day where you are. So this is always fun for me. I, I love global conversations and you realize that um, we're all part of the same world and we are all trying to do the same thing in, in HSC, which is get people home safely every day. And, and it, it brings a human factor into what we all do. So uh, thank you for having me. Um, I am in Phoenix, Arizona. So I am on the close to the West Coast of the United States. Uh, right now it is 8 a.m. in the morning. It is a beautiful morning and I'm, I'm happy to be here. Um, my, uh, my background, uh, giving you just a little bit about me and how, how I came into the industry is actually quite a, a, an interesting path. I was in fiber optics uh, for years and years, the foundational elements of the internet. Um, and uh, in the 90s, uh, I might be older or maybe not than uh, many of your listeners, but um, you know, I've been in technology a long time, uh, pretty much most of my career. And I ended up getting out of fiber optics and after the bubble burst in 2000, 2001, and I, I ended up getting into satellite communications. And for your listeners who don't understand how satellite plays into uh, HSE and safety, when you're in a high consequence world where you're dealing in oil and gas or mining or construction or infrastructure and utilities, you tend to be off the beaten path of traditional uh, cellular or mobile phones, particularly in the 2000s, early 2000s, and, and, and early in the technology boom. And so I was doing a fair amount of emergency phone systems and emergency satellite phones and so forth for what happens if somebody gets injured? What happens if there is a, heaven forbid, a, a rig site explosion or 
an injury or somebody gets caught up in something very bad. And so I had to understand what the expectations were for response times and what the expectations were for all that. And so through my, I mean, and it sounds like such an off the beaten path journey and it really is, but I, I got a passion for the HSE side of the house um, and understanding the human aspects. It can be very dry in technology. You get removed from people very quickly. Um, it's all zeros and ones and, you know, and at the end of the day, I like doing things that impact people. And so um, after I got out of my satellite business, I was fortunate enough to exit the satellite business and um, I did all right. And I was able to start thinking about what I wanted to do. And it was when all the gig economy platforms were popping up and I was seeing some things in the low skill world, uh, things like, and there's nothing wrong with it, but the Ubers of the world and, and delivering, um, delivering food and uh, you know, where you have to have a driver's license and a good driving record and a, and a reliable car, but that's probably in a, in a, in a willingness to work, of course. But beyond that, almost anybody can do it. Um, my son, who's 18, you know, he delivers groceries in the afternoons to make extra money. I mean, it's, it's a good, it's a good gig for many people. I, I thought the gig economy for, could be great for knowledge workers, thinking of lawyers, thinking of accountants, thinking of architects, um, people who are specialists and experts in their field. And then of course, because of my background, I knew HSE and um, I know how many rules and regs and things that are involved in compliance and insurance and all the things that are necessary to run a sophisticated program and thought, you know what? I think this could be very interesting for people in our industry. So that was how Yellowbird was founded. Nice. And now that you mention it, why the name Yellowbird? <laughs> it was originally not named Yellowbird. Um, I am not the greatest marketer in the world. I will admit that I, uh, I do like to speak about uh, my passions, but from a creativity perspective, the first name was actually Zip, and you're not going to like this because you're in HSE land, but it was called Zip EHS because EHS in the U.S. is more common than HSE. So it was a zip, like zip recruiter or zips. I mean, all the zip of the, of the early gig economy companies that are, and uh, matching companies, um, EHS. And when, when we started, uh, actually launched the business, I hired a, a marketing agency and it's a tip of the cap to the canary in the coal mine. Um, the, uh, and we, uh, we are actually going to be coming out shortly, um, with our own at Yellowbird. We're going to have a, uh, a podcast coming out called Canary in the Coal Mine. Um, but essentially Canary in the Coal Mine, the, um, it's a tip of the cap to the first, uh, safety tool essentially, which, um, a, a the canary was there whistling next to the worker. They'd go down there with their lunch pail and their, uh, canary. And when, um, oxygen levels got too low, the canary would faint. And that was the first indication that we need to get out of here. There's uh, we're lacking oxygen. And so it was, you know, it was a nice little tip of the cap. Um, I, the agency, uh, frankly came up with it and my, at the time, 10 year old daughter or nine year old daughter at the time loved the, the birdie. So that's kind of how it came to be. That is an amazing story. <laughs> I must say they really did a great job. I think that a part of that's. No one is ever going to forget that story. Whenever they hear that story, it will stick with them. 
And I definitely think that the the logo and the branding behind it is really well crafted. So I think yeah. you did a great job on um, in on investing in in some marketing people. That's really amazing. I was uh, fearful at first, to be honest, uh, because one, um, it was kind of a strange name. It took me a little while to to uh, you know come around to it. But I was also fearful because you always hear about these brand stories and then you find out you go into other parts of the country and, you know, uh, maybe a, a yellow bird is a bad omen in some part of the world or something like that. Mm -hmm. I've always had in the back of my head that, I'm, you know, you, you, uh, there's a story of MGM that um, MGM Casino that uh, apparently they're walking through a lion's mouth uh, was a was taboo in certain Asian countries. And. They actually had to redesign part of the MGM brand's uh, front door uh, because they they were they were blind to that realization, and then they said, "Why are our Asian clients not coming?" And that was um, that was a, something I read an article on. I thought that was interesting. I don't want that to happen to me. <laughs> I can appreciate that uh, because it is a bit of a work to get uh, the branding rights and kind of getting the story behind it. So changing that over time can be kind of tough, uh, to be fairly honest. So in your world and kind of from a 50,000 foot view, what is it that Yellowbird is providing to the world? So unfortunately to the whole world, we're not providing enough yet. We're, we're mostly providing it to North America. Um, we are doing some global work, but they're, they're US companies. Um, so they're, they're, they're U.S. workers that are going to other parts of the world for to keep um, to keep safety um, in the field and to basically uh, help with safety programs. So the easiest way of describing what Yellowbird does is that if you look at an HSE professional, they all have their secret power, right? Everybody has certain things that they really love to do, and their background is in a certain industry, and you know, they are familiar with other industries, they can do it in other industries, but most people, actually all people have a journey. And whatever that journey was, they learned a lot during that journey. And that's the area that they have unique value and unique skills. When an HSE professional registers on Yellowbird, and it's free, so you just go to goyellowbird.com and you, you fill out your profile and you can upload your accreditations and certifications. You tell us about yourself. You and put in your resume if you have one or your LinkedIn. And we build essentially a profile um, that we take all the data and the keywords and the things that you have, then we, we use a little bit of Yellowbird secret sauce. And when a customer comes in and they say, and I'll give an example, let's say that a, um, an oil and gas group comes in and they say, we want an on-site safety person for this rig for three months. Um, and we are not just in oil and gas, but we are in gas and we are in, you know, the Northern territories and it's very cold and you have to deal with some safety matters that are in the very cold environment. And, um, and we are again, drilling from natural gas. And so there are certain things that are necessary from a safety perspective. That person with a cold environment, working in natural gas, being on drill rigs, understanding um, OSHA compliance and all the requirements that you have for in that scenario, we can match to that, that skill set. Um, 
they could be the same certification as any other. But if you don't have that uniqueness, like there are thousands of people that have, and I'll be arbitrary an example and say a CSP, a certified safety professional cert. But the same person who's going into a coal mine is also going into a, a laboratory, a clean room. Those are not the same people. <laughs> I mean, you know, somebody who grew up with, uh, with muck on their face going down a, a coal shaft and knows how to handle themselves in a coal mine not the same person who's going to feel necessarily, necessarily, you don't want to generalize, uh, feel comfortable at Pfizer in a, uh, you know, in a clean room laboratory, right? Definitely, definitely. All right, so that's quite interesting. So if I were, let's just play the role, right? So I'm an HSE person. Uh, do am I out of the job? Is it full time with you guys, or can I have my own job? Or how how does that how's that structured? So we find that there's really three types of people that are platform that are on our platform, and we don't accept everybody. Just you know, we actually do background checks. We validate people certifications. We um, it's you know of over four thousand people who have registered on our platform, which is quite robust. We wow. have about eleven hundred that are match ready, as we call them, which is They've gone, okay. through, we've gone through the full process. We have about 1,100 a, a, a people that have gone through the full process that could be deployed tomorrow. Um, so I apologize. I actually forgot your question. I'm embarrassed to say. Go no, ahead. but that's perfectly fine. So I was asking, so how it works. And you mentioned there are three types of people that are, if they're full-time employees, or yes. how does it work? Yes. Thank you for that. Um, it's eight o'clock. I haven't had enough coffee, obviously. Um, so there are full-time uh, employed people who are willing to um, consult and they take generally a PTO day, a paid time off day, and they will come out and maybe they'll do like a safety training. We do a lot of things like um, an OSHA 30, if somebody has their uh, OSHA 500, um, that they can become a, a trainer. Um, and that's in the US, of course, um, for OSHA guidelines. Um, maybe they do forklift training. Maybe they are doing document review um, and they're doing it in the evenings. Uh, we do a fair amount of that kind of thing or or program creation. We've had groups who uh, individuals who, you know, they'll they'll make, you know, three, four, five thousand dollars working for us to create a create documentation around a certain programs because they have a, a specialty. That's one type. So they're full time employed and they'll take time off or they'll be able to, to figure out when they can work. Um, we do not try to, we won't place them in their own company and we won't place them in a direct competitor's company because it's just poor, poor form. Um, the other part are individuals who've been running their own consulting practice and they want to help find new opportunity. Uh, we are very stringent in not allowing for folks to circumvent us. And so there's, there's guidelines around that. It's very, we're very careful that if a job comes through Yellowbird, it's a Yellowbird interaction. And so we still facilitate all of that. And then there are the individuals who in the back of their head always wanted to consult and maybe they've retired. Um, and they say, cause everybody says this, what are you gonna do when you retire? No, oh, I'm gonna golf, I'm gonna do some consulting. And the thing with this industry is um, many of us, and I can't speak for everybody, but many of us aren't salespeople and to build a consulting practice is hard. I mean, you have to go and network and go to the Rotary Club and uh, maybe go, you know, you've got to figure out a way to generate business. So that's one of the things that Yellowbird does if somebody ever wanted to um, 
create their own consulting. And so we can help with that. And I guess the, the next question, the natural question would be, well, why wouldn't they do, why wouldn't they just do this themselves? Uh, why would they use Yoober? And for us, we need, we do some very important things for um, our consultants. Uh, we have over $5 million of insurance that we put them on. So we cover their professional liability insurance their general liability insurance, extended auto coverage for when they're driving to and from locations as well as occupational accident coverage. So if they get hurt on the, on the location, we actually have insurance for them, um, which is an important piece of this equation. We also do all the billing and receiving on their behalf. Um, and we also do all the marketing on their behalf and we pay them in 48 hours. So you go and do a job and you complete that job. We will pay you in, in two days. And the speed of payment is really the kicker because Collecting from some of these customers is horrible. <laughs> it's, and they know you're small and they know you need it and you don't want to burn a bridge because you keep following up, but you don't want to follow up every day. And, you know, it's like, well, you know, they owe me like three or $4,000. Um, I could really use it. It's Christmas. Um, all of that stuff plays into our value proposition. And so we think because of that, that's why we take a percentage. The vast majority goes to the, to the pro. We average around we average around thirty percent that we that we get. So for every hundred dollars, um, seventy dollars goes to the professional, and um, and I think there's enough value there that it's worth it for them. Uh, way more value. So don't <laughs> worry about that. It's a completely fair deal because just if you were to just fulfill one of the things that you mentioned, either getting the business is thirty percent worth. And then getting paid from huge clients is also 30% <laughs> worth. So if we're just aiming one of these, it's, it's well, it's, it's a really nice thing to do. And <clears throat> I actually think that a lot of people underestimate how much energy it takes to build a business mm -hmm. and especially people who are kind of in going towards the retirement age, they think that their network is going to do it for them. And then they have maybe 10 people to call or 15 people. And then when they have called them and no business showed up, they're like, that's strange. Yes. So I think that it, it's really something that's extremely well off that you're doing because there is a lot of experience that would go lost either way. Like if people just went to retirement and all of that great knowledge and experience that are inside them would just not go to you, be used. I haven't, uh, I haven't said this quote in a long time. So, and I'm going to, I'm going to say this quote and I, I apologize because I don't know where it came from, but I do know it's a native American, um, uh, quote. And I used to use it early days. I've raised a couple of rounds of capital for the business and, um, and we were mainly focused on the retired community. When we launched, mm. we were mainly focused. On the retired okay. community, we ended up focusing um, on the entire community, not just retired, because I was getting people that said, "Can I sign up?" Even though I'm working, you know, and it's like, "Oh, sure, yeah, absolutely." And so that's kind of why we broadened. But there was a quote that I used, and um, I'll say it now because I've mentioned it three times, which is um, when, and I'm paraphrasing, so I apologize if I mess it up. When when an elder dies, it's like burning a library, mm. and I think of that when people retire in this community, they, 
you've got 30, 40 years of experience, 20, 30, 40 years of experience. You've seen so much. You've all this wisdom and stuff to contribute. And in most circumstances, this industry pays well. And so you likely can retire and be okay and not, you know, hopefully have saved and all the things you need to do to be, be stable. But the contribution gets lost. You stop being a member of the community. Uh, the, you know, all your knowledge. And I know this because when my dad retired, it happened to him. You know, he, he, he was a president of, of his association in his industry. He um, was there for 35 years. And then uh, when he retired, he wanted to sit on boards and he wanted to be a consultant. And, but he wasn't a salesman and not much happened with it. And, um, and that's why Yellowbird, that's actually one of the foundations of Yellowbird. And I think that whole being able to give to others is yep. probably the greatest value of being a Yellowbird pro, um, the, the staying relevant and staying involved. Definitely. All right. So from a curiosity point of view, how do you qualify the 1,100? That must have been a tremendous <laughs> amount of work. It is a tremendous amount of work. Um, Fortunately, I'm a tech guy. So the vast majority of our process is actually done with technology. So that's one of the ways that people, I early on was having people say, well, you're not an HSE guy, how do you know? And, and I often say, you know, the people who create QuickBooks are the coders that create QuickBooks are not accountants. And the people who create the, um, the barometric barometric pressure uh, machines are not necessarily scientists. Um, you just because you serve an industry does not necessarily mean that you have to be the expert in that industry as long as you're consulting with experts in the industry and make sure that you're properly representing them. And we do. We have many many uh, relationships that have helped us. So the so what we do is we do validation of certifications when somebody has a cert. So we will actually do we call it an API call, but essentially we go out machine to machine and we validate that the document that someone uploaded is valid. Um, and if it is not uh, digitally validated, then we have a team of, they're basically interns that will do the research and, and validate it. No. Um, we also do spot checks throughout the network um, and we track when people's certifications are coming up. We have relationships with the accreditation and certification companies and universities. And so they want us to, to validate because they don't want people representing that they have something that they don't. Um, they're very careful about that uh, saying, you know, if I'm with, if I say I'm an, uh, CSP, well, I've done five years of, of work to get there and I've taken the tests and I've studied and I've, it's a very prideful thing. They don't want somebody just going and throwing CSP after their name and and um, so they support us in this. And so most organizations that offer certifications actually have reached out to us and offered to help us uh, validate oh, the search. That's amazing. So then the cheeky question is, why aren't you just then validating the rest of them or they didn't live up to the credentials or what, so, what's the reason? Because it's 2,900 that's just waiting or yes, what's going on there? Well, they're not, they're not done yet. Um, okay. So it's not that they, they haven't been cut off. They're in process. Okay. Um, but one of our validation processes, so this is the technical side you're talking about. 
there's also the social side that mm -hmm. is very important in this industry. It's the hardest part to um, match. If I'm being really honest, I can look at your CV or your resume. I can look at the data and I can say this person is absolutely qualified. They've been 20 years in the oil field, as an example, or 20 years in the construction industry. They've worked with drywall. They can deal with airborne particulates. They're an industrial hygienist and they have a CIH or whatever this or happens to be. But pardon my French, but how do we know if you're not an a-hole? <laughs> right? How do we know you are a good human being that are going to treat people respectfully and that are going to show up on time and that are going to do the job with professionalism? And so part of our process is how, how are they moving through our process? Are they diligent in how they're filling things out? We do check on them and we make a phone call to them. Um, are they rude? Um, are they, um, do they not do what they say they're going to do? Hey, can I call you back in 10 minutes? I'm on, I'm on another line. Yeah, no problem at all. Give me a call back in 10 minutes. You don't get a call back. We, we note that. Um, and a couple of those dings, of course, people, you know, people could be in the middle of an incident um, and sure. they can't call you back and that's perfectly fine. But if you get like three or four of those indications that somebody's kind of a jerk, um, we don't pursue them further. Uh, we mark them as we, we mark them as a um, as uh, um, non-matchable. Yep. So, and that's the piece that over time we're going to get better and better at. When people say, "What's your secret? What's your secret sauce that could make you better than any other?" That's the piece. Figuring out and the ratings and the scores are also part of that. Kind of like Uber, right? Somebody yep. has a four point nine nine nine, and they've had five thousand reviews. You're pretty confident you're going to get a pretty good experience. Yep. Somebody has a two and uh, and have had, you know, 500 reviews with a two. That means that there's a lot of people who had a bad experience. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So if you don't mind, then let's try to look upon it from your customer's point of view. What is it that they're getting from Yellowbird? So we talked about this before the camera came on that the the industry is, is filled with a lot of knowledge. Unfortunately, it's really, really hard to have one or two or three people who really have a solid grasp of all of it. It's also very, very difficult to execute a proper HSE program in the field. And so our customers primarily are using us for volume. Um, so I'll give you an example. If you run a machine shop and you have 40 locations across the country, and you know that you need to do um, respira uh, respiratory fit testing for the people who use their masks. So you need to go and get fit tested for all those people with their masks annually. How do you execute that? You know, and I have a director of HSE and EHS, and I have a, a maybe three or four people on staff if I'm lucky, probably not, probably one person that's responsible for all of it. Um, they come to us and they go, wow. So. I don't have to send Bjorn around to 40 different locations on an airplane, staying overnight, doing all of this stuff. Bjorn can become the, the puppet master, essentially, the, the air, air traffic control, and you can be managing each of these Yellowbird people to say, okay, when are you gonna be out there and you're doing it via our platform? Um, here's what I want you to do. Here's the document we need you to fill out. 
and you can execute 40 sites in 15 days, you know, and that would have taken potentially a year, you know, if you, because you have other, other parts of your job that you're needing to do too. That's the thing. Some of these field work jobs, people are like, well, I have people that do that. And the reality is absolutely do. There's no question. There's nothing that we do that somebody internally can't do. The question is, while you're doing this tactic, this tactic, this program, what about all the other things that you should be doing as well, <laughs> right? Uh, you have to kind of put a pause button on all the other stuff that you have to do because you have, oh shoot, I have to go do this. And heaven forbid there's an incident or an accident and you have yep. to go do an incident report or an accident report. You've got to deal with the insurance um, or well, loss control and claims and all that stuff. Now, whatever respiratory fit testing or a machine guarding assessment or you know, forklift training, or, I mean, it can go on and on. Hazardous materials management program, that all goes on hold when there's an accident. It's like, okay, we gotta get down there. I'm, I'm getting on a plane tonight. Sorry, honey, I know it's Christmas Eve, but I'm leaving and you're gone. And now everything stops. And yep. that's um, what we're solving for. Yep. And here comes something where I find it extremely interesting. And I don't know how much data you have on this at the moment, but what's the biggest request that you're seeing? It's a, uh, we keep track of that. Actually, we, we track that very, very closely, most candidly for marketing purposes. If we're getting the same requests over and over, we're like, okay, this is a pretty big market, right? Um, yep. you know, we're not a very old company. We're only three years old. Um, mm -hmm. we've grown very, very large. We're in all 50 states in the U S we, um, are starting to expand in other territories and so forth. Um, we, so the number one request changes and, it, but I'll tell you the, our bread and butter is, um, mock OSHA inspections where mm -hmm. somebody says, look, we're coming up for our annual review with insurance. I want somebody to come in and do a mock walkthrough. And we do a lot of that kind of work, both for the company as well as for the insurance companies. Um, the other thing that we do a fair amount of is the insurance companies will hire us to do loss control surveys for them. Um, because as we all know, when the broker goes to the owner and they say, well, you fill out this form, so a loss control form, the owner starts filling things out that they may or may not be quite as confident in their answers that they should be. And the broker gets paid for getting this thing through. So they're not going to put up a red flag. And then the insurance company has to carry the, has to carry the risk, has to carry, you know, a claim comes through, the insurance company is paying. Or the insurance company is now fighting because they can prove that you actually falsified the document. And mm. it's not a falsification. It's they probably didn't know. I mean, that's the reality. You know, mm -hmm. somebody says, do you have a sprinkler, uh, a sprinkler system in your, in the attic of the building? And you're like, well, I'm walking around here and I see sprinklers on all the roofs. Yeah, there must be sprinklers in the attic. I'm saying, yes, I'm not going up there. Check. Well, mo many company, many, um, buildings don't, you know, they've got sprinkler systems in the, in the dwelling area, but not in the attic. Well, there, that is actually something that can affect actually your, your ability to receive money for a claim. Because yeah. you said you had this and you didn't. So uh, we do a fair amount of that kind of work. And then we also mm -hmm. do a fair amount of um, company internal compliance. 
So I'll give you an example of, let's just use that um, machine shop. Let's just say that a company decides to use a self-insured methodology or they'll take the first million dollars of liability um, that they'll cover themselves. So it's, it's coverage over and above a million dollars. Well, mm -hmm. that company now has a million dollars of liability. They might want to run their own loss control surveys at all their locations because they're in for, for the first million bucks, they're carrying that. That's their responsibility. So whoever mm -hmm. committed to that, they got a lower premium on their insurance because they said, I'm going to cover the first million dollars, right? And so a lot of companies are hiring us to go do walkthroughs on their behalf. Um, and so as an example, we would view, uh, say a retail in environment, we'd go do a slip, trip and fall assessment at every one of their sites. Um, maybe in a, in a, uh, in a manufacturing environment or a fabrication environment, we would do a hazardous materials assessment, but also do their, um, their rinse station and their eyewash stations. Because you'd be surprised how many eyewash stations are now used as bowls for um, for bolts and nuts and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, until somebody gets a, a splinter of metal in their eye and they run over to the eyewash station and they look down and they can't splash their eyes because it's now a bin full of bolts and nuts and screws. <laughs> that and has that changed? That those two that you mentioned as the biggest request, has this changed in the lifespan of the company? I know it's only three years, but are you seeing kind of there's a change coming? You know, it's an interesting question. We don't have that big of a data set. We have about 300 customers, um, which is pretty big in three years. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, we've done well. And, and those customers can include big insurers who do lots of repeat business. Um, I could, I signed a deal. Well, I didn't, but the company signed a deal. Um, to do site surveys for 2000 locations. Um, it's very exciting. Um, it's a rinse and repeat kind of a job. It's gonna pay mm -hmm. very, very well to our pros. So if any pros listening to this sign up because it's gonna pay <laughs> very well. Um, and, um, you know, they will be our highest volume request immediately. But does that mean the industry has changed? That's one customer, right? So we can skew with data real quickly here. And so I always try to, I always try to look at, we look at our data in three ways. We look at yep. how many jobs we've done in, in aggregate. We look at types of jobs we've done in aggregate. And then we also look at consolidation. Um, so as an example, let's say I had 40 different construction sites that were doing temporary safety staffing. They had temporary safety people coming out to those locations and being on site. It's great, great application. It's a win-win because most construction companies don't have enough safety staff to oversee programs during that um, duration. Various durations are higher risk. You know, build up, um, move in and move out days, having extra safety hands there, good idea. So you could have those 40 locations and 40 people but technically it's one job per location. So that's only 40 jobs, which is a lot, don't get me wrong, where I do a gig that has 200 site surveys. Um, you know, that's mm -hmm. a higher volume, but it's one customer versus 40 customers, right? So yep. you just, uh, I look at things very differently uh, as, a, as a 
as a geek. I understand that. And, and <laughs> it's very self-realistic. So it's a really great approach. But if you then put yourself in the chopper and kind of have the overview of the HSC, where, where do you see it's changing from and towards as, as a whole in general? So there are a lot of technologies that are coming out right now that I'm very excited about. Um, and some that I'm not excited about, um, but have have value, but I'm not excited about them. Um, it feels in this industry, there's a lot of people that are trying to get data gathering um, and highlight risk through computers. And so there's groups that are monitoring sites through video cameras and are um, seeing, you know, near misses with, with heavy equipment, or they're seeing ergonomic lifting points uh, where people are bending improperly. And that's actually not a bad thing, but it feels very big brotherish. It feels very intrusive, but I get it. I understand, but it does feel very, um, and look, you're at the work environment. You, your company has to, they're doing what's necessary to keep you safe. That's they should be. And that's what it's all about is keeping people safe every day. And so I get it, but you know, there are different pluses and minuses to all this stuff. So there's a lot of technology around that is interesting, but what most of the technology does technically is it raises a flag that says you need to improve here. What I like is that we are actually feet on the street that can help people truly improve. So let's just go back to those cameras that see the near misses with forklifts. Well, that's actually really, really great because that's a good technology. You've maybe you have, you use those cameras in blind corners. You don't use them everywhere. So people are watching everything that you're doing all day long, but maybe you use them in blind corners or in areas of high risk. And then you say, all right, we need to have somebody come out every quarter and refresh proper forklift safety or proper heavy equipment safety etiquette. Um, you know, the, the three most ex um, risky things you can do in, on a job site, heavy equipment, heavy equipment, lifting and um, climbing heights. Those are the three things that will kill you fastest. Of course, the fourth being confined space, uh, run out of oxygen, get caved in on, things like that. We have people that can come and do training programs around those. And it's, we're very, very practical. And it's what some of the venture capitalists don't like about us uh, because there's a lot of moving parts. Um, now we're doing it with tech, there's a lot of moving parts. And so I guess the quick answer is, I see the industry becoming bigger. And that's the best part for me. I see, the, I see people valuing, not just saying, but valuing safety programs, valuing um, if we give access to training and give access to walkthroughs and give access to localized talent, I see people saying, okay, I wouldn't have paid $5,000 to do this, but I'll definitely pay 1500. Like if we make it more economical and that 3,500 that, that, that isn't being charged went towards air flights and car rentals and food and beverage and, you know, all in hotel rooms, the consultant was never getting that money. Uh, the company, you know, the people in consulting sometimes come to us and say, you're trying to drive down pricing. And the reality is, is I'm actually technically not trying to drive down pricing. Technically, and my customers are going to hate me to say this. 
I actually want to increase the wage to HSE. I want to decrease the overhead. I want to yep. decrease exactly. the stuff that they have to pass through for $1,500 plane tickets and overnight stays at the hotel and the rental car. And if I can get a local person that lives locally who tries less than 40 miles, that's a, that's a win. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. We see quite eye to eye on that one, because I think that regardless of how great the technology that's coming out there, as soon as we put a human being into the working situation, there is a risk because we are humans and we come to work with different types of history, different types of moods, different types of situations. And that can vary yeah. in a very, very quick moment in time. Yes. And as long as we have that factor in there, we need to have other people to educating them on how it is that they should act in that particular situation. Obviously, when we only have robots, then we don't have to worry about it anymore, but we're not quite there yet. And the predictions are that we still need people to come to work, regardless of how many robots that are there. Mm -hmm. so I completely agree with you that we are in a rising market. And especially when it comes to just people paying attention to the situation that they're in is just going to go through the roof because it's going to be easier and easier. There's going to be a lot more protection. There's going to be tech that's telling you you're not lifting correctly, or there's tech that's telling you you're driving the forklift wrong, or now you're showing signs of being fatigued. Uh, I also interviewed a guy who has, they're doing a, a new tool where the operator needs to do a certain amount of cognitive training before he goes on. Hmm. And it registers if they're not to their own baseline, if they're below their own baseline, hmm. which is great but they're still not having the tools and trainings to actually go and say, all right, so if you're below your baseline, what do you do? Well, then there's not kind of, there's no room for improvement, so to speak. That's, that's, and that's what gets me excited. That's, that's an interesting tech. That's an interesting technology. Um, I see pluses and minuses to it. My first instinct there as a business owner is what is this going to do to the project timeline? So somebody comes in, they're a little groggy. They go to the, they go to um, get into the equipment. They can't open up the rig door before they go and uh, do their cognitive test and they, and they fail. Is the company willing to um, wait till the next day or make the person go and take a, a, a nap and go do it again? Are they willing to wait the three or four hours? What, exactly. What, what is that's the, where it's exciting, right? right? Because tech can tell us what the problem is, right. but it can't necessarily show us the solution whenever it's evolved around the human mind and the human being as, as a person. And it's hard. It's a hard decision. I can tell you right now as a, as a business owner, you know, you've got a whole lot of money on every hour we're sitting. And now we have somebody who showed up and they're, you know, they're tired and, they shouldn't have been tired. They should have been ready. And if you're frustrated and everything else, but you have to make the heart a hard decision there. It's like, okay, it probably cost me, you know, I'm going to be arbitrary and say $10,000 an hour. It's going to be a yeah, yeah. $100,000 an hour. Do I make the person go take a nap for, for an hour or do now that I know that they're now that I know that they're uh, impaired in some capacity, 
what's, yeah. what is my ownership of this? That all but you got to give them credit, right? You got to give the organization credit for actually introducing the software. Right. And then we need to see what's actually gone. What are they going to do with the results? Yes. Yes. It's, it's fascinating. It'll be interesting to see. Um, it'll be interesting to see what protocols they put around for, I mean, good results. It's kind of like every, it's easy to go to ideal scenario when everything works. Uh, how do you, how do you react when everything doesn't work the way it's supposed to, or you do identify a risk that it's, it's intended to identify a risk. Okay. Now you've identified it. What do you do? What's our, what's exactly. our plan? And what the plan should be, by the way, is cross training. Just so you know, I'll give you an answer. <laughs> cross training internally. So it's somebody else can run that equipment. Um, so it's not the only person that can run that equipment. And so, obviously, so you don't have to, so that you don't have to stop, but I'm like, I'm not going to just throw this, this company under the bus because it's a great technology and I, I like it. But the answer to that riddle that I just gave is making sure that some, there are two people at all times are trained to do the, the job in case one person can't. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. That's one way of going about it. Right. 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 That's it is, I'm sure. But it is. Quite interesting what's going to happen. As you mentioned, there are a lot of great technologies coming out mm -hmm. and it is going to be a very exciting time. Uh, Michael, I want to thank you for actually taking the time out of your busy schedule. I know uh, that you're in a very exciting process right now. So it means a lot to me that you would take the time to actually spend it with me today. Thank you. I always, you're welcome. I always end the podcast asking, is there anything that you think that I like asking you when you look upon the time that we spend together right now? You know, um, no, I think we really covered some great, great ground. Um, I'm a little saddened myself that we're not in all territories or I know you have a huge following around the world from Europe and uh, Africa and other places. And I'm sad that uh, that we're not in all of those places yet. Um, we're mostly in North America, and we do send people overseas, but they're U.S. citizens. So I I, I am disappointed for ourselves that we we're not going to be applicable to some of your listeners. Um, but that being said, time will come, and we will be international. We will be global. So thank you so much for letting me talk today, and I hope um, I hope you learned a little bit about technology and Yellowbird. Um, anything you want to know about Yellowbird is on goyellowbird.com. It's like G-O, go, yellowbird.com. And uh, I'd love for any of you that are listening to to feel free to sign up or, or use us um, if you have uh, needs. I'd appreciate it. Beautiful. All right, Michael. Once again, thank you so much for taking the time. Have a great day. Thank you so much, Bjorn. Thank you so much for listening to this episode about the human factor in HSE. I hope that it brought some value to your everyday work. And I truly hope that this can be a small part of you actually being able to send more people home safe, create significant cost savings and truly get the appreciation for the work that you deliver to your organization. If you have any sort of feedback or comments to anything that you have heard on this particular episode, please do go to acceptplanexecute.com and reach out to us. I'm always eager to learn from any kind of feedback that you must have. Have a great day.